The Old Testament reading for today will come from Proverbs 9, and the New Testament reading, which will be our sermon text, will be James 1, 5 through 8. I'll be referencing several other scriptures as usual, so user beware. Um, you'll have to thumb through rather quickly. If, uh, if you like, you can always make reference to the other scriptures that I make mention of, and uh, perhaps look at them at a, at a later time, but just a, a warning on that. Proverbs chapter 9. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn and hear. To him who lacks sense, she says, Come, eat of my bread and drink of my wine that I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. Make note of this particular verse too, brothers and sisters. Verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant, but he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Let's look now at the New Testament reading and sermon text for today, James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, without doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, unstable in all of his ways. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the wisdom of your word. I pray, Lord, that you would grant wisdom now in the preaching of your word, that you would give wisdom to the hearts and minds of those who hear it, that we would hear your word, Father, for we know that wisdom is a core theme in your scriptures. So help us to understand it. Help us to apply it. Help us to know this wisdom that you speak of in your word. Help us to think deeply upon it and apply it. Help us to approach your scripture, Lord, with diligence and with reverence, Father. And I pray that you would bless now the preaching of your most holy word. All God's people said, amen. The title for today's sermon text is God Gives Wisdom. And much of what will be discussed today and much of what James discusses is the contrast of the wisdom of God with the wisdom of man. It seems that our Western culture that we live in today is a society that is obsessed with fixing things. Never mind whether something is broken or not, everything seems to be about the progression of making something better than it was the days or years before. Gone, it seems, are the days of relying on the wisdom of the past. The predominant teaching of the world today is that the future is about progressing and evolving into something better and more advanced. Because the ways of the past, in their minds, were primitive and archaic. This is the worldview that has come to permeate a large portion of the entire globe, in fact. And what is it that is at the core of this worldview? What's, what's the, what the fundamental uh, attribute at, at the center of it? It is the belief that man is king and that he is in complete control of all things. It is the belief that uh, man, man is God, and therefore it is man who both controls and creates the future. It's out of a man's arrogance 
that he believes that he knows better than God. It is this worldview. It is the reason and intellect of man that holds the solution and answers to the future, at least in their minds. This is why, brothers and sisters, man is always trying to improve upon society. Have you noticed that? Rather than looking to the wisdom of old and how life should be lived, man welcomes the burden upon himself to improve the world and society under his own knowledge, thoughts, and ideas. Notice how, as our society becomes more and more secularized, how much effort it goes through to erase the things of God and replace it with the, quote, new and improved creations and ideas of man. As Paul states in Romans chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, claiming to be wise, they've become fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The wisdom of God teaches dependence upon the Creator, but the wisdom of man, <clears throat> the wisdom of man, finds whatever reason it can to erase God and to deify the intellect of man. It is this foundational folly that's at the core of the depraved heart of man. For when man fell into sin, the essence of his worldview fell from God-centered to self-centered. A depraved mind sees no need for God. But a redeemed mind, a redeemed mind, sees God as the center of all life. As I was thinking about this introduction, a story immediately came to my mind. I remembered a time that uh, I was a uh, professor at a local community college. I'm sure everybody knows what college that is, but just for the sake of preaching up here, I'll just say a local community college. And I was teaching uh, psychology. And I had a student in one of my classes. I've always had students in my classes, but there's a particular student that I'm uh, talking about today. And this student knew very early on in uh, taking my class that I was a Christian. They caught on to that very, very quickly. And so this, off, uh, this student would often try and catch me with uh, you know, clever remarks or questions while I was teaching the class, trying to uh, get the professor to slip up, trying to bring doubt upon that which the uh, instructor is, uh, is saying and trying to get people to think differently. And it was very clear that this was because the student wanted to try uh, breaking down that which he knew I stood upon. And so one particular day, probably about halfway through the semester, the student began trying to make a claim for atheism based on our topic for the day. The student became very vocal and tried saying things, uh, basically trying to disprove, because by the student interacting with me, much of the class had caught on uh, that I was um, a Christian. I pushed back with some questions in return, as, as, I, as I should, as was appropriate in my, uh, in my current position. And the student would then, uh, then responded with some rather audacious remarks in the middle of a class lecture. It was quite disrespectful, to be quite honest. So I politely and kindly told the student that I would gladly discuss this topic with him after class. I told him he could stay after class. I'd gladly speak with him about it. He and a few other students stayed behind after class, it seemed, for some sort of backup support. Uh, there was probably about five or six of them that, that stayed behind, uh, ready for this duel. <clears throat> and it basically became an intelligent design debate about whether it's more logical to believe in a creator or to believe in the process of evolution minus a creator. That's really where the conversation went to and where the student was trying to attack and so I listened as the student um, basically went out and gave uh, his entire reasoning, and I was quite quiet for the first part of it. And after a few minutes <clears throat> of this uh, particular student sharing all these ideas and thoughts, and basically you can tell that this uh, uh, individual had spent much time trying to create this uh, rebuttal and thought that it was airtight. So I just listened, and after a few minutes began pointing out that his logic and argument uh, were actually inconsistent. It's a good tactic, too, by the way, for uh, if you ever engage in such a conversation. Um, people will usually give you enough information to show where they are inconsistent. And that's exactly what I did. I had no uh, need or, or reason um, or desire to try um, diminishing the student or, or, or uh, embarrassing the student, but um, they asked for it. And I think that the student was surprised uh, by my questions to find out that at the core of his belief there was in fact a large portion of inconsistent information. 
and I could tell the student was quite perplexed with the questions that I gave in response. And really, that, that's the majority of what I did was just gave questions in return. I really gave no statements. I was questioning um, his own belief system. And so the student recognized uh, in, in that moment that his worldview was a bit flawed. I think these are questions that he hadn't thought of before. But in the midst of the student, and you can probably, probably picture kind of the, the type of personality the student had, in the midst of them being presented with questions that made them think, hmm, maybe what I'm thinking is not proper. Maybe I'm not looking at this the right way. What do you think the student said after seeing that their argument was in fact flawed? What do you think they said? Do, do you think he said, oh, wow, well, thank you for showing me that. That, that is very, will you tell me what I should think? Because I'm very interested to know. Uh, we wish, right? We wish that the heart of man that was, was that open to the things of God. No, this isn't what this student said at all. I will tell you what this student said in the midst of his worldview crisis, and I will never forget the words. This was kind of a changing uh, point for me. This is a, a very important time um, because it really gave me insight into really the thinking patterns between a lot of people who were hostile towards the things of God. And, and here's what the student said as I presented things that essentially said that um, following science alone cannot answer the, the, the uh, solution for life on earth and to, for, for why we exist the way that we do. And so the student seemed perplexed for a moment, but then again responded with these words, well, we don't have an answer for that yet, but we will one day. And, and he was totally fine. He was totally fine with that, with that, uh, uh, that response. You know, it was, it was a quick shift of, of, of perplexion to, well, man doesn't know yet, but fear not, you know. Um, we'll, we'll know one day. And was very content with that answer. I thought to myself, wow, instead of entertaining the fact that you might be wrong about what, what you're thinking, about uh, that you might be wrong that there in fact is a creator and that that creator is God and that, that creator gave his son to atone for your sins to rescue you. Instead of thinking that, this individual immediately fell back upon his trust in the wisdom of man. In other words, this student who came to me out of a debate of faith, and, and I think it's important to, to make note now that what this student was really attacking is that uh, it is unreasonable to have faith this student claims at the very end to only have faith in man and science. He had complete and total faith in the abilities and science of man and this individual's mind. An incomplete or inconsistent worldview was no problem. Just give it time, he said. Man will find the solution. So as he attacks me for having faith, sure is funny what his final conclusion was, to have faith in man, reason, and science. And this reasoning should sound very familiar to those of you who um, have seen such debates or follow such science, um, because it's the same reasoning that atheists and evolutionists use today regarding the creation of the world. How could such a perfect world in existence and human being exist, one might ask? Well, they would say that with enough time and with enough chance, that's how it happens. Just implement enough time and enough chance, and eventually you will get these things. It all can be explained through the mechanisms we have. And if it can't be explained by the mechanisms that we have, just give it more time. We'll get there eventually. That's really the, the, the worldview behind this. And, and that's why they can easily brush these things off, because they say just in time, uh, these things will be known. We don't know it yet because we're just not there yet. Because remember, we're progressing. We're getting better and better and better. And sometimes I look around and I say, it's better, right? Science will one day explain it, they think. We just can't yet. And so to the atheist, I say, that sure is a lot of faith that you put into your science, especially when you attack a person who has a faith in God. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing, brothers and sisters, the lengths that people go to in order to disregard the evidence of God all around them. We shouldn't be surprised at such a worldview approach, for this is exactly what Paul speaks of in Romans 1, 20 through 21, where he states, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. It is our worldview, church, 
that dictates how we think. <clears throat> it is our worldview that directs how we live out our lives. And most importantly, it is our worldview that controls how we live out our faith. This is why it's so important to know and read the pages of Scripture, so that our minds are renewed and conformed to the teachings and the truths of God. And having our minds set on the realities and truths of God's word is central to what James is teaching in chapter 1 of his epistle. James is calling his readers to, in essence, have a proper biblical worldview as they sojourn throughout this life. In my previous sermon, James 1, 2 through 4, we saw that James is teaching us how we are to, quote, consider it joy when we face trials of various kinds. Many of you were there for that sermon. If you weren't, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it uh, again. Perhaps even today it will help give more context, I think, to um, even uh, what is being preached today. And so, in other words, James was providing for us the proper worldview and perspective that believers should adopt in the midst of our trials and tribulations, specifically in the midst of our trials and tribulations. And the entire book of James provides a proper worldview, this proper worldview to the people of God. And the book accomplishes this by presenting a a dichotomous theme. It's a contrasting theme throughout James, throughout the entire book, where the wisdom of man is contrasted with the wisdom of God. In other words, those who are mature or wise against those who are weak or worldly. In James 1, 2 through 4, the author gives us further insight into the proper perspective uh, that the people of God should take when facing trials. But James goes beyond this perspective in verses 5 through 8, giving us a solution, a solution to the people of God of how we are to obtain wisdom in facing the trials that he spoke of. So it's very important that we look at verses 5 through 8 today in light of verses 2 through 4. They obviously collect, uh, um, connect to one another very closely, but in order to understand 5 through 8, you have to understand 2 through 4 in its context. Scripture must always be interpreted in context and in light of its surrounding scriptures, because in verse 5, we see that there is a wordplay that connects verses 4 to verse 5. This wordplay seems to be best captured in the NASB translation, where the conclusion of verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5 state this. Verse 4 ends with lacking in nothing, verse 5, but if any of you lacks wisdom. The same word lack is used twice and placed in parallel with the other. The reason for this is to emphasize the connection between what we lack and what we need. And what is it that James tells us that we need in the midst of our trials of various kinds? Our solution, James says. Our cure, our remedy is wisdom. It's wisdom. Think for a moment about that. James could have said anything of what we needed in the midst of our trials and tribulations. Because remember, we're to consider it joy when we face trials of many kinds. And James could have said anything, implement anything. This is what you need. But what does he say that we need? Is it that we need it to disappear? We need a remedy? We need, we, we need uh, you know, three wishes to, that we can use throughout our lives to make it disappear? He said, no, you need wisdom. Wisdom is what is needed by the sojourner who is enduring trials and tribulations of various kinds. We learned previously in James 1, 2 through 4 that our trials are given to us to make us complete as Christians. But what is it exactly that is gained through the endurance of our trials? What exactly do we gain in our trials, brothers and sisters? You should know that we gain wisdom. That is, in fact, what is being gained. And if you read the scriptures, how valuable wisdom is, how valuable wisdom is. You can see here why James uh, has this play on the word lack in verses 4 and 5. Because that which we lack is exactly what we need. And that which we need is exactly that which we lack. Wisdom is a solution to what James is presenting to us. But to fully understand and apply James's teaching, it is important that we answer two very foundational questions. Two very foundational questions. <clears throat> One, what is wisdom? Right? The assumption is that we know what wisdom is, <clears throat> and the, the teaching of, of wisdom in Scripture is, is very deep. It's uh, very profound. But question number two is how do we obtain it? So question one, what is it? What is wisdom? 
Question two, how do we obtain wisdom? I'd like to address the first question prior to looking at James 1 through 5. <clears throat> and then uh, I will go on to answer question number two uh, throughout uh, looking more closely at James 1, 5 through 8. So, we ask the question, what is wisdom? Well, the Old Testament reading for today would be a very good place to start in answering this question, specifically Proverbs 9, 10, which states... The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Though going through the scriptures and doing a detailed study on the concept of wisdom would be a very useful and beneficial task, there's many good books also written on biblical wisdom. You can ask me after church, and I'll give you some recommendations on that. We simply do not have the time uh, in, in this context to engage in, in such a study. And so instead of going through and doing an in-depth study on it, I will give you a very brief and concise definition of biblical wisdom. I'll give you the cheat sheet version of it. But I do encourage you to further study and understand this concept of wisdom. Go back and read the Old Testament reading for today and you will see there are so many other scriptures, especially throughout the Proverbs, that talk about the absolute importance of obtaining wisdom in our lives. So are you ready for the definition? The concise one? The easy work, the one that I just give to you? It's a very, very short definition, but at the same time, it's also a very accurate one, so don't be deceived by it. And here it is. Biblical wisdom is to have godly knowledge and apply it. That's it. Biblical wisdom, in its essence, at its core, means and is to have godly knowledge and apply it. Again, don't be deceived. Though this is a very short and concise definition, it is in fact an extremely profound and insightful one. Biblical wisdom is to have godly knowledge and to apply it. For to be wise means to have the insight of God. To be wise is to have the insight of God. And it is godly insight that is most needed when we endure trials of various kinds. So with uh, this insight and with the definition of wisdom being set, let's look more closely at verses 5 through 8. In verse 5, we see that it begins with the word if. If. James tells us right at the beginning of verse 5, <clears throat> That if we are confused about what we are enduring, if we're confused about our trials that we're enduring, we should go directly to God and ask him for wisdom. Believers need wisdom to live a godly life in this fallen world. And as James shows us, one of the primary roles of wisdom is to assist us in understanding our trials of various kinds. It's important to note, church, the distinction between wisdom and knowledge. You may know something, but that does not mean that you fully understand something. It doesn't mean you have wisdom about something. Knowledge is information. Wisdom is understanding with application. Knowledge is comprehending facts. Wisdom is handling life in a God-honoring way. What James is telling us in verse 5 is that it's simply not enough to have knowledge that God uses our trials to shape us into his image. It doesn't take much to have knowledge about that. You can know something and not understand something. You can have knowledge on something, but that does not mean you're wise. We need wisdom in order to truly understand, apply, and live out the teaching that James presents to us. Therefore, our trials demand wisdom. And it is legitimate to ask God for wisdom in each and every circumstance of life. We should always ask God for wisdom. I know I do. Because how often it is that we find ourselves lacking in it. We never need wisdom more urgently, however, than when we are facing trials and difficulties. It seems like we're most in need of wisdom when we're trying to understand, why me? If you've never been in a place in your faith, brothers and sisters, where it crosses your mind to say, why God? The time will come. And what is it that James says we need? We need wisdom. We need wisdom to understand that which God allows into our lives. Verse 5 shows both our need for wisdom 
and also how this wisdom is attained. In asking the question, how do we find wisdom for the facing of trials, James provides a very simple yet profound answer. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. No one is sufficient in and of himself to face the trials of this life, but the Lord is sufficient for his people. Like so many other teachings in Scripture, James brings us face to face with the importance of prayer. Prayer is such an amazing and essential resource for the people of God, isn't it? It connects our feeble and frail lives to the almighty, almighty creator of heaven and earth. And I don't doubt for a moment that most of us pray when we face trials. I don't doubt it for a moment. But to ask the question, if one prays when they face trials, is almost irrelevant. You might be thinking to yourself, well, why? Have you ever heard of the saying, there's no atheists in foxholes? You ever heard that before? Even non-believers will at times call out to God as a plea of desperation. And this is why James gives a condition for receiving the wisdom of God. It's not enough to simply call out. And so the question that James puts before us has not to do with if we pray in times of trouble. Even atheists can do that. Rather, it has to do with what we pray for in our times of trouble. For this is what separates the mature Christian the wise Christian, from the weak Christian or worldly Christian. This even separates from those who are not Christians at all. Church, when enduring trials and tribulations, do you pray for your trial to be lifted? I know I do. And there's nothing wrong with that prayer. In fact, I would encourage you to pray that your trial should be lifted and would be lifted. For the scriptures tell us that God is, in fact, in the business of rescuing us from our trials. One, one verse that, that uh, came to my mind was uh, 2 Peter verses 2 through 9. Listen to what uh, uh, Peter says in 2 Peter in the, in the second book, chapter 2, verse 9. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. When he says and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, that means he's talking about rescuing us from our trials in this life. Okay, That's, that's the context of it. And that's important. God is in the business of rescuing us from our trials. It's not, it's not his desire to simply keep us in trials and to keep us in misery. It's his desire to mature us and to grow us into a child of God, into something that has uh, eternal usefulness. When we endure trials, we should call upon the Lord for help. That's very, very clear. But when we pray, when we call upon the Lord, we must never forget the most important part of our prayer. To pray, not my will, but your will be done. The will of God should be at the top of our prayer hierarchy. And when we ask for God to rescue us from our trials, we must also simultaneously ask him for his will to be accomplished through our trials. This is exactly the model that we see when Christ prayed in the garden prior to his arrest and crucifixion. He asked for it to be lifted, uh, to be lifted. But he again said, not my will, but your will be done. And so, I hope, brothers and sisters, that when we pray, when we pray for God to rescue us from our trials, that we also remember to ask God for wisdom. Because this is exactly what James says we should do. And this is exactly what James says we need. Because, because we need wisdom to respond to our trials correctly. When we face our trials of various kinds, we need wisdom to allow us to navigate those waters. We need to know how to respond in such a way that we do not dishonor God by our lack of faith in the midst of our trials. Faith is central. Faith is central to our asking for wisdom. Notice, though, how James develops his progression to how we are to gain wisdom. Listen to the specific phrases that James uses merging from verse 5 to verse 6. Verse 5, the phrase, if any ask, God, quote, gives to all generously, quote, without reproach, and quote, it will be given. But notice that there's a condition in order for one to receive this wisdom that's discussed in verse 6. For the Christian is to, quote, Ask in faith, quote, without doubting. In verse 5, James tells his reader that in order to know how to respond to their trials, they should ask for wisdom. 
But there's a massive catch to this command. James says in verse 6 that the believer must not only ask, he must ask in faith. This is the condition for God's wisdom to be given to the believer. This does not refer, however, to the doubting of our own abilities in the midst of trials. We will certainly doubt ourselves, and we should. We should, for we are weak. We will fail in our own strength. We will fail in our own power. But it does instead refer to the doubting of God's ability and God's willingness to provide wisdom in the midst of trials. It's okay to doubt ourselves. It's not okay to doubt the Lord. Verse 6 issues a challenge. The wisdom that is offered will not come automatically, nor is it gained by self-effort. If we want to receive it, we must ask for it in faith. The word ask could be better translated to keep asking. This infers that the believer is to persevere in prayer throughout their trials. The perseverance in prayer is also a testament to the faith of the believer. For the one who has faith will surely persevere through the duration of of the trial that they are experiencing. James emphasizes the need for faith because the opposite of faith is doubt. The way that James uses the word doubt is to mean that one has a divided mind, and this divided mind draws the individual into two different directions. Later on in verse 8, James will use similar words for the term doubt, where he will refer to the doubting individual as one being, quote, double-minded and, quote, unstable, in all of his ways. But here in verse 6, James uses the profound imagery, likening the doubting person to that of the wave in the ocean that is, quote, driven and tossed by the wind. Both the language and imagery throughout the book of James are very eloquent, beautiful. The examples that James uses really help bring to life the points of application that he is uh, making, and this really allows the reader to, to understand and uh, to, to see the practicality of what James is saying. And if you're asking yourself at this point, what does it look like to have faith in the midst of trials and tribulations? James helps answer this question by telling us what it looks like to not have faith. He gives us the opposite. The image he uses to portray the doubter is that of a wave that is tossed to and fro. That's the image he chose. Picture in your mind, if you will, brothers and sisters, standing on the shore of a beach, watching the waves come in and go back out. This is the image that came to my mind as I was reading this. I started thinking about an ocean. I like the beach. It's very peaceful. It's very serene. James kind of ruined that for me, right? In itself, it's a very beautiful picture, watching those waves come in. And one of the things that makes it so beautiful is, is the constant ebb and flow. It's the moving of it, right? It's constantly moving. There's no stillness that's there. Think about why we find water so tranquil. It's always moving. A river, a stream, the ocean. But when applied to James's teaching, the applications are almost immediate. A wave has no foundation. A wave is always moving in different directions. Sometimes the tide is up. Sometimes the tide is out. This is what our faith must not be like, James says. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Rather, our faith must be firm, consistent, not changing. Church, several times I have referred to this verse of asking for wisdom in the midst of trials when offering counsel to others who are in the midst of difficult times especially uh, trials and tribulations that require them to make decisions. And I assume, if you've been following along, that you can guess what the most common question I get when I refer to this verse and tell the person that they should uh, apply this verse in their life with wisdom. Can you guess what the most common question is that I would get? You're thinking in your mind, am I supposed to respond in church? I don't know. We're so conditioned. Well, I'll tell you, the most common most common question by far is, well, how do I know, pastor, if I've received the wisdom of God? I'm to ask for it. I'm to ask in faith. And I've done that. But how do I know that I've received it? Perhaps you can see the fatal flaw that's at the core of that question. They're giving themselves their very own answer. What is it that's assumed when a person asks if they've received the wisdom from God? It means that they, in fact, doubt if he really did give it at all. 
But this is still a, a legitimate question nonetheless, or else people wouldn't ask it so often. So how is it? You may be thinking that you're right. You know, how, how do we know if we've received that? Maybe you've not thought of it before, and now I've put that in your mind. And you're thinking, I don't know. I'm confused now. How do I know if, in fact, I have received this wisdom from God that I've asked in faith? Well, I have an answer for you. Would you like to know the answer to this question? Why not? Well, I'll answer it in a future sermon. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'll answer it, this very, this, in all seriousness, this very important and pertinent question for you right now. And the answer is very similar to that which we looked at, the definition for wisdom, because it's very complex, yet it's very simple and concise. The way that one knows that they've received this wisdom from God is that they trust that God has given it, and they proceed. They trust that God has given it and they proceed. That you must act, brothers and sisters, on the fact that God has and will give it. You pray for it and you continue about the business of life as God continues to mature and grow you in your faith. When we ask the Lord to give us wisdom, we ask in faith. And he promises that he will deliver. So if our faith is sincere, we have full assurance that God has provided the needed wisdom in the amount that he finds fit, in the timing that he finds fit, and in the way that he finds fit. But what we must do when we're obedient to the words of James here, when we ask upon, upon the Lord for wisdom, we must, we must move forward with the assumption that the Lord has, in fact, provided it. This is how we act in faith, and this is how we live out this scriptural teaching in faith. This, again, is what it means to pray in faith. As the author of Hebrews states in chapter 11, verse 1, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is why, after telling his readers to ask God for wisdom, James impresses upon them the importance of doing so in faith. It's not enough to ask. James makes it very clear. We must ask in faith. To ask in faith is to ask without doubting. For the one who asks and then doubts is what James refers to as being tossed by the wind of the sea and being double-minded. Remember, even the faithful will not pray in faith perfectly all the time. Brothers and sisters, we have to know that none of us do this perfectly. Though I think James has a very stark warning for us, at the same time we must be careful to not think, I've doubted before. I'm double-minded, I'm unstable, I'm wretched. We could easily go there with this verse, I think. And we need to be careful to, to realize the fact that we are not going to do this perfectly. But we also have to remember and keep in mind that James's purpose in this whole book is to contrast the mature with the weak. He is giving us this is the mature response, this is the weak and worldly response. This shows us the proper way to respond in contrast to the improper way. So if we find that we have erred in being faithful in this command, do not immediately condemn yourself as being the one, again, that is tossed to and fro, as being double-minded in all of your ways. Rather, what you should do instead, if your heart is sincere, you should reflect and ask yourself these two questions. One, am I praying for wisdom in the midst of my trials? One, am I praying for wisdom in the midst of my trials? That would be in contrast to you just simply saying, Lord, take it away. If you don't take it away. Yeah, I always find it interesting when people start to bargain with the Lord. Lord, listen, let me tell you how it's going to go. I'll give you two if you just give me one, right? The Lord is not in the business of making deals with us. His covenants are from his wisdom. And praise the Lord for that. So are you praying for wisdom in the midst of your trials? It's okay to ask for it to be taken. But James tells us it's essential that we pray for wisdom. Question number two, once you've prayed for wisdom, are you trusting that the Lord is providing this wisdom? Two, are you trusting that the Lord has provided this wisdom? Question one, are you praying for wisdom? Question two, are you trusting that the Lord has provided it? These questions will help determine the state of your heart in the midst of your trials and tribulations. It's interesting the amount of information people will give. As you guys know, the um, majority of the ministry that I engage in is, is in counseling. And as you listen, you just listen, people will tell you a lot. One of the things that they tell 
is where their faith is at. The questions that one asks, the things that we're concerned about, really will dictate where our faith is. And when a person is only concerned about their way, and when a person is only concerned about the things that they see and they want, one of the things I'll usually ask is, what about God? What does God want? You're his creature after all. You didn't ask to be born. God put you here. You, you, you are a work of, of his hands. What does he want in the midst of this? When we ask for wisdom, we may not immediately feel as if we're getting this wisdom. Right? What would that feel like anyways? We don't usually see things clearly while we're in the midst of our trials and difficulties. But as time passes and we look back on the situation at a later time, we're usually able to see that God did indeed give us the needed wisdom that we asked for. In verses 7 through 8, James gives a rather harsh rebuke to the one who asks in a disingenuous faith. He says, For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, unstable in all of his ways. God answers prayer, but the only prayer that honors him is prayer that is offered in faith. God delights in the person who with confident faith believes that he is who he says he is and that he will reward those who seek him, Hebrews 11.6. We can all sympathize with Jesus' disciples who were rebuked in Matthew 8.26 for their lack of faith. Personally, and I'm being honest about this, personally, I often find myself praying as the man who came to Jesus with the demon-possessed son in Mark 9.24 who confessed, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. In other words, Lord, I believe, give me wisdom. And so we can have complete confidence that God will give us the needed wisdom when our faith is genuine and sincere. But for the man who does not trust in the Lord, James says that that man should not expect anything in return, for he is, quote, double-minded. Literally, the phrase double-minded means two-souled. This phrase is unique to James in the New Testament. Many scholars believe that James is the one who coined it, used it first. And it is very likely that this phrase uh, was a derivative of the Old Testament phrase, double heart. You can see uh, references, 1 Chronicles 12.33 and Psalm 12.2 in regards to this. This is also akin to John Bunyan's Mr. Facing Both Ways, for those of you who are familiar with Pilgrim's Progress. Doubting, wavering, praying arises from a person who has a divided heart. And as they're tossed between confidence in God and the thought of whether God even exists at all, shows where this man is. This individual straddles the fence, and they are considered to be unstable and fickle, vacillating not only in prayer, but also in their daily walk. Make note that this type of doubting person that James is describing is either not a believer or a believer that has drifted from the mercies and teachings of the Lord. This person, this person is mentioned by James as both an encouragement and a warning for us to be faithful in prayer and to trust in the Lord our God. It's both an encouragement and a warning. Therefore, we need God's wisdom to respond to our trials correctly so that they will produce in us patience and maturity we must be sure that God will give us the needed wisdom because to ask God for wisdom and then doubt puts us in danger of being the double-minded man who is unstable in all of his ways. But what James gives the believer more than anything else in this passage is the confidence that the Lord will in fact provide the needed wisdom to his children who ask in sincere faith. And it is this reason, it is for this reason that we are able to quote Consider it pure joy when we face trials of various kinds. As we begin to move to a closing, I would like to offer three points of application from James 1, 5 through 8. And they'll be relatively brief. Relatively brief. To consider, this is point number one, to consider our trials as joy requires wisdom. To consider our trials as joy requires wisdom wisdom. What we see in verses 2 through 8 of James is twofold. We are to count our trials of various kinds as joy. That's why the previous sermon was so important, so important into this one. But point number two, or part number two, but we can only do that through wisdom. We can only do that through wisdom. How in the world 
could we consider our trials as joy? That's crazy. To the man who's of the world, to the man who does not know God, that is crazy. Fight for yourself. Do something. Make a difference. To sit and to trust in the Lord, to provide and to make ways, seems crazy to the man of the world. But to the man of God, to the man of God, we know that this is the absolute and central truth. It takes wisdom to see the value of growing in our faith through our sufferings. And as our faith increases, so does our wisdom and vice versa. The message of James up to this point is quite clear. Are you suffering, believer? Count your trials as joy, for the Lord is working his eternal purpose in your life. Are you having a difficult time understanding your trials, believer? Ask the Lord for wisdom, and he will give it to those who ask in faith. Be encouraged, brothers and sisters, in the midst of your trials. And I know, we all know, there are most certainly trials and tribulations amongst us. For we know that the Lord is working his most perfect will in all of our lives. Ask the Lord for wisdom. He will surely give it to you. So that your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.7 Point of application number two. Point number two. God gives wisdom only to those who sincerely and humbly ask. I think it's very important to, to know that. God gives wisdom only to those who sincerely and humbly ask. To pray to the Lord with an insincere heart, to approach the Lord inappropriately is a very dangerous thing. Several individuals throughout the Old and New Testament have perished for approaching the Lord in a disingenuous and inappropriate manner. James's warning to those who ask, not out of faith, are given a very gracious consequence, however. They're simply told that they should not expect anything from the Lord. Remember, church, that we serve a loving and gracious God that desires to give us good things. But when we come to the Lord in need of wisdom, we must come humbly and ask with a sincere faith in our hearts. We have to check our hearts as we come to the Lord. That's why it's so important each Lord's Day that we check our hearts as we come to approach Him. The Lord sees no benefit in helping the individual who does not have a sincere faith. The man or woman of God knows uh, the God whom they serve, and they have full confidence in him. They know that when they come to their Lord and Savior with broken and contrite hearts in faith, their God will hear their prayers and respond. So go to God. Ask for wisdom. He will certainly give it. But ask in humble and sincere faith, for he is the God who created all things, knows all things, and provides all things. Point number three, and the last point of application. To receive this wisdom, to receive it, requires a mature faith. To receive this wisdom requires a mature faith. It is not enough to just ask the Lord for wisdom. As I've said many times throughout this sermon today, we must ask for wisdom, and we must ask in faith. To endure the trials and tribulations of this life takes a mature faith in Christ. It is only through wisdom that counting trials as joy can be understood. The worldly man sees no need for God. He sees God as a burden. He sees God as, an as being unjust for allowing the suffering in the world that he has. But for those of us who have been trained by the wisdom of God, we know that the Lord works all things for good to those who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. This is why we see throughout the Proverbs the importance of the reader to search out and obtain wisdom. As Proverbs 8.11 says, wisdom is better than rubies and jewels. All that you desire cannot compare with her. May your life be one that is marked by the obtaining and living out of godly wisdom. For if we search for wisdom, ask for wisdom, surely it will be given to those whose hearts are pure because they have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. In conclusion, I ask you, brothers and sisters, where does your wisdom come from? Do you search out and rely upon the wisdom of man? Or do you search out as an utmost top priority the wisdom and understanding of God? Our faith will determine our worldview. 
and our worldview will, di- will direct how we live. And in the midst of our trials and tribulations, the faithful will reach out to their creator for understanding, and he, he will provide it. But for those who see no need to follow God, when calamity strikes in their lives and they call out to God out of an insincere and disingenuous faith, they should not expect anything in return. However, if a man humbles himself before the Lord, recognizes that he is the created and God is the creator, sees that his sin separates him from the saving power of God, and acknowledges that Christ and Christ alone can atone for his sins, there is much hope for such a man. For God will surely hear the cry of those who call upon his name. And so may we pursue wisdom, brothers and sisters. May we ask God to grant us wisdom, for it is the solution to our sufferings, to our trials, and to our tribulations. And as I close, I would like to again read a brief proverb that pertains to wisdom. Here, the final time, Scripture's plea for today to the people of God to find wisdom in all aspects of life. Proverbs 3.13. Proverbs 3.13. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. And so, may we see the value of godly wisdom and call upon the Lord for insight in our sufferings. For he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. 1 Thessalonians 5, 24. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for wisdom. We thank you for your word. I pray that you would, in fact, grant wisdom to your people. I know there's much suffering, Lord. And according to James, therefore, there's much need for wisdom. May you give it. May we search out wisdom and the wisdom of you and your word is more important than anything else in this life. For that is what you tell us in your word. But may we also, Lord, make note of this beautiful teaching that you give us in James James 1, verses 5 through 8, that if we lack wisdom, all we need to do is but ask. In the name of Christ we pray. All God's people said, amen.